0: Well, good morning, everyone. As Steve alluded to this morning, we are going to be starting our study on Second Corinthians. This morning, we're going to spend time mostly in an introduction to sort of lay the groundwork. So, we're not going to be in the text of First or Second Corinthians. I'm sorry, Second Corinthians. We're not going to be in the text a lot because we're going to lay some groundwork. Because there's a number of things that actually are, are taking place that sort of um, help us to understand why Paul does what he does with 2 Corinthians. It is a rather unique letter in a, in a number of ways, and we'll touch base on that. But go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians with me. We'll at least touch on the introduction here. 2 Corinthians. We're going to talk about the author in the date a little bit, the recipients, the makeup of the letter, some other things. So I'm hoping that... Um, Because much of this will be historical, that I won't see eyes gloss over, but it will be important that we grasp onto some of these things so that we understand, because it's going to make much more sense as we go through the letter. Um, And you'll hear Dustin and I, Dustin and I are going to split the teaching on this um, over the course of the, the series, he'll do some weeks, I'll do others, but we're going to be referencing certain things that have happened that might not make much sense unless we pay attention to what happens today so we're gonna we're gonna do that but as you notice just look at the first verse it says Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother to the church of God which is at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia let's go ahead and just touch base on a couple of things the letter obviously it says is written by Paul and uh, by his brother Timothy he says that's not uncommon that happens quite a bit with Paul he traveled with companions, including Titus and and, uh, Timothy as his right-hand men, so to speak. Um, We also know that he traveled with Silas, and he traveled with another man, Silvanius, and Epaphras, and some others, and even with Luke through the book of Acts. And so this one is, you know, oftentimes Paul will include those individuals when he is sending letters, and it's generally because the folks know who Paul mentions. And that's going to come in important here too because Timothy at one point had made a trip back to Corinth and carried one of Paul's letters to them. And so they were familiar with Timothy. So it was Paul's way of sort of including Timothy in the writing but also just encouraging the people that he's writing to because they would have known who Timothy was. The question is, when did Paul actually write this letter? Well, you know that Paul went on a number of different journeys, and sometimes he would go out to an area, and then he would come back down through that area. Well, this one, this letter here was actually written on Paul's third missionary journey, um, Acts chapter 18. In fact, why don't you go ahead and um, we can touch base on this now. Yeah, Let's go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Jump down to verse 23 or so. In fact, as you look at, um, if you look at chapter uh, 18, you'll notice many times in your Bibles it has little headings above it. Does anybody say Paul at Corinth or Paul's visit to Corinth or anything like that? Let's just go ahead and read through this. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Achilla, a native of Pontius, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them and because he was of the same trade he stayed with them and they were working for by trade they were tent makers and he was reasoning in the synagogues every sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks but when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia Paul began devoting himself completely to the word solemnly testifying to the Jews and to G- to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ but when they resisted and blasphemed, blasphemed, that means the Jews, when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, I am clean, for now I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshipper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there, a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Gallio was pronschool of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it is a matter of wrong or, the vicious, or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names of your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge on these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Paul, having remained there many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. And so we basically have Paul's first visit to Corinth. We see a lot of things happen there. So Paul had actually written this, uh, this letter at some point that on this third missionary journey, probably near the end of it. Um, if you want a timetable, I don't know if this matters, but somewhere between A.D. 55 and A.D. 57. Um, is when Paul would have written this letter. And we know he wrote to the Corinthians here. It says that. You go back to 1 Corinthians chapter... Or 2nd, I keep saying 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says that he wrote it to the church of God, which is what? At Corinth. But he also says that he wrote it to all the saints who are throughout Achaia. That's the uh, Gre- Greece area. In fact, if you look at a map, and we might see this a little bit later, but um, south of an area called Macedonia in Greece was what was called a Ki, and that's the region that Paul was writing to. And there were apparently more than one church in that area that Paul had established, probably house churches, and so he's writing to that group of folks, that's the recipients. We're going to talk about them here in a minute, kind of give you an idea of who they were. Um, in terms of where this fits in the New Testament, Paul wrote um, Galatians and Romans also on this same journey. And so there's actually some things that you'll see, some similarities. One of the concerns at Corinth was what we already read in the chapter here. Some of the Jews were concerned because Paul was preaching contrary to the law, they said. Well, you know, the whole theme of the book of Galatians were these Judaizers that had come in and tried to tell the Jews, you have to obey the law. Paul's teaching against the law. And then we saw the book of Romans where Paul lays out this amazing picture of the gospel and the contrast between the law and the gospel. And so you have those same themes. So Paul writes this letter. Um, There's some instances where some super apostles have come in and are trying to teach the law and saying that Paul probably wasn't teaching the law. So we see similar themes in these different letters that he wrote all about the same time. Those are all things that are on Paul's mind. So what about these people that Paul actually wrote to? Well... As with most first century churches, they were mostly home churches in Corinth, and it was a mix of Greeks and Jews. and we saw that in the passage you already read. Remember how the Jews weren't having any of it. And so Paul said, "I'm going to go to the Gentiles, that's the Greeks." But some individuals, some Jews, actually got saved, and so this church was or these churches were actually a mix of Jews and Greeks. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, because we got our first clue as to who these people are in terms of a mix. Where did they fit socioeconomically within, within um, the, the culture there? If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I think it's verse 26, if, I'm, if I have my notes correct here. Paul says this, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. He goes on there to discuss some very similar things, but notice what he says here. He says that of these Corinthians, not many of them were wise by human standards. He says that not many of them were very influential people. He says that not many of them were of noble birth. So what we have here are fairly common folks. They're like you and I, with the exception of Dustin, who has some royalty... Just teasing him. Um, So they were fairly common folk that Paul has been addressing here. Um, If you turn in 1 Corinthians and you go to chapter 7, you're going to see something else. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21, he says... Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able to also become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Other or likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in a condition in which he was called. Who is Paul addressing there? Was it the fancy, the rich? No, he was actually referring to the lowest form of, I guess you'd call it, the lowest social status, which were slaves. And so we see just in this letter to 1 Corinthians that they weren't very wise by the world standards, they weren't super influential for the most part, um, they uh, didn't have a lot of influence in the community, and many of them were slaves. So we have this, this mix, if you will, of sort of middle class, some maybe lower class with the slaves, but there is also another influential group, though, that makes up probably a much smaller part of these churches. And the way that we know this is because of the names that Paul reads. There's a number of names we already read. He mentions Priscilla and Achilla in 1 Corinthians. Okay? They were tent makers, which was a fairly lucrative trade. It's one of the reasons why Paul probably was able to do it and only do it part-time and still support his him himself and the needs of the people that he traveled with. It was considered a fairly lucrative. I'm not going to say it would make him rich, but it was a good trade to have or you were able to do it part-time and still travel. So we have Priscilla and Achilla who were probably not necessarily wealthy, but well-off, if you can say it that way. We have this man named Titius Justice. He's also called Gaius Elsewhere who owned a large house It was large enough to support a home church. And most of the archaeology indicates that these churches, these early churches that were held in homes, that the homes had these large open areas that could seat 50, 60, 70 people. They were fairly nice homes. And so this individual Tustis Jitus, Tustis", or Tedius Justus, we find in Romans chapter 16, we find it here in 1 Corinthians 14 as well, that he had a house. He was responsible for a house church. So he must have also been a man of um, fairly—he was fairly well set up, is the best way to say it. Maybe not rich, but well to do. Um, there's another man, Crispus, that's, that we saw in Acts chapter 18. You notice he was the ruler of the synagogue. They were supported fairly well. They were fairly well off um there's a couple others stephanus and chloe were also mentioned um and it says that they also were much like gaius their homes were large enough to house a house church and again the house churches at this time were typically 40 50 60 people in size then we have erastus who's also mentioned he was the city treasurer which was an extremely influential individual within the community. Think of politicians today. And so what we basically have is the makeup of these house churches, if you will, likely reflected kind of the makeup of Corinth itself, which is probably a good thing, right? Um, Culturally, socially, with attitudes, everything else, they probably reflected Corinth fairly well. The bulk of the church was probably middle class with some slaves, and so fairly middle class to lower class, with... A certain number of highly influential or fairly well off individuals in the church. Now that's going to become important because um, it kind of causes some contrast in the church. But what's interesting is it reflects exactly what was happening in the culture, which was kind of interesting, and we'll touch base on that here in a little bit. Corinth was actually destroyed in AD, I'm sorry, in BC 147, completely wiped out. About 200 years later, the city was basically abandoned. So about 200 years later, um, I think it was, uh, what does my note say here? 44 B.C. The city was repopulated by a very famous Roman individual. Anybody know who that Roman individual might have been? Anybody, especially you kids that have studied maybe some ancient history. There was a very famous individual. There's a play about it. He was an emperor. He was killed. Julius Caesar? Julius Caesar actually was responsible for reestablishing Corinth. He took a bunch of what are called freedmen, slaves that had been freed, and he put them back in the city and formed a brand new city on the ruins of a city that was had been destroyed 200 years earlier. Okay? And that was rather unusual because usually you took your most prominent people to build a city. And what he did was he took freedmen, which were just kind of like, maybe like you and I, middle class, and he populated the city with them. It was one of the, probably one of the most modern cities in Greece at the time because everything was new. Think about that. You know, I, I often joke about how you know Verizon has been around for years and they have this massive network with their towers and cell phones and all that kind of stuff, right? But so much of it is built on, on old technology and they have to keep upgrading and adding things. Well, when you get a brand new upstart like a T-Mobile and they've got nothing invested, they can take all their money and put it into the newest equipment, And so they can build out their network with all brand new equipment where a company like Verizon has a little more difficulty sometimes because they have to maintain old equipment while also building out the new equipment. And so sometimes these young upstarts like a T-Mobile are just, they can compete and they're just agile. Everything's brand new and flashy, you know, fastest speeds and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's kind of what we have here with Corinth. He comes in, he builds his brand or rebuilds this brand new city. It's all modern. Everything looks good. You know, I was watching a video last night um, with some of the stuff that's going on in, um, must be Vienna or wherever it is, with the streets all flooding and some issues they're having because the city is sinking. And it's funny because I'm I'm watching this and thinking, everywhere you look, it looks old. You know, here in America, there are places that look old, but for the most part, things are pretty modern, right? Because we're only a couple of hundred years old. And that's the way Corinth was. A very modern, rather posh city. Had about a million people that lived in it. So it was about the size of Columbus. Matches us fairly well. Now, what, else, what also makes this unique, and we covered this when we taught on 1 Corinthians a number of years ago, was that Corinth was positioned in a rather interesting place. In fact, I'm going to try to do this, if I can, um, on the maps here. And it's something that actually makes a pretty big difference in terms of what happened in the city. Let's see if... We're going to do this... Is that showing up on there? Oh, we disconnected it. Hold on a second. See if this will show up. There we go. Come on. Oh, you know, I don't have good... Uh, I was going to show you what it looks like. Um, well, maybe this will do it here. See that okay? So this, that's Greece. You see where Greece right in the middle of the screen is there? We're going to zoom in all the way down to where Corinth is. Okay? So we see where Greece is. Anybody see where Corinth is yet? Yeah. Okay. Keep zooming in. Keep zooming in. You notice there's a little blue line right there? Here's what's interesting. This was built to be a posh city. Caesar knew exactly what he was doing. This right here is only about six miles wide, and it's between two gulfs, and it's a massive trade route. And so everything that went from one gulf to the other had to go through Corinth. Can you imagine the wealth that that would have brought to a city and opportunity? It was also the slave trading capital of the world, where slaves that were traded in the area all had to be trafficked through that area. And so you had this little tiny city of Corinth, which exploded into a million-person city, right about this area, it's a little further south here, and controlled all of this trade back and forth, which means you had tons of different people groups from all over that section of the world that were coming through there. And you had a lot of wealth and other things. But the other thing that this actually did, you can go ahead and shut that down so it won't burn off the battery. The other thing that this actually did was it created an awful lot of opportunity for people in the area. If you lived in Corinth, this meant business opportunities were staggering. So it created this ability for a lot of upward mobility. Now think about this for a moment. If you're a freedman or you're a slave that that, um, wants to get ahead okay, and there's all these opportunities to better your status, would you take advantage of that? And that's exactly what we found in the culture at Corinth, it was that there was this, um, this strong emphasis on bettering yourself, bettering your status in life, um, making money, becoming um, wealthy, if you will. But it wasn't so much about the money as it was status and prestige. So they placed a really high degree of emphasis on a person's status in life. And so what would basically happen is there were multiple ways to do that. One was you could start businesses and you could, you could grow your, your wealth and other things and sort of buy this status. But there were also other things that they would do where um, maybe somebody that had a little bit of money that had a decent sized house might throw a lot of parties, Invite the wealthy and the prominent people in town. And so the more you did that, your status would increase. So it's kind of like a politician works, you know. Politician gets real popular by inviting all these other famous people and everything else. And, you know, their, their status and prestige sort of focuses on you. So within the city of Corinth, they placed a high degree of value on one's status in the community, the influence that you had. And sometimes it was based on wealth, meaning you just simply had a lot of money. But other times it was more built on the connections you made and um, how you worked things, you know. And so you may not have been real super wealthy yourself, but boy, you had all the connections and everybody knew you. And that was extremely important for people at Corinth. And that also plays into our picture today because Paul comes into the city as a man who's working for a living, who um, is facing all these trials and difficulties, and he had been locked up and thrown into prison. Can you imagine how people might look at him? because his status was fairly low. Especially when you had other people coming into the church of higher status trying to say, well, look at Paul. The guy's been in prison. He's a tent maker. You know? And so you have much uh, more uh, people of much higher status than Paul making people look at Paul with a certain amount of disdain. And Paul's fighting this battle now because some of the Corinthians were starting to abandon him partly because He didn't match up to the culture and the society in terms of status and other things. And people were using that against Paul. So he had come in and preached the gospel, founded some churches there, and now they're abandoning him partly because they had been convinced, he's not all that important, he's not all that influential, and likely by people who were playing the game. They were trying to build a name for themselves. Another thing that was fairly popular were traveling philosophers and speakers and whatnot that would come through the area. And oftentimes they were people in the community um, to gain status would invite those people into their homes and would take care of them and would give money to them. And Paul didn't live by any of those rules, and so it offended people. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff that plays into this. And so you can see within this culture... It was all about bettering your status and, and kind of climbing the ladder, if you will. And that was extremely important. In fact, in, in some ancient writings, they almost describe it as if it was a disease. Meaning it was so prominent that it just infected their culture. It just encapsulated everything they thought about and, and did. That also, you know, if you think about what Paul said about the uh, you know the slaves, you know, if you can get your freedom try to seek for that there's an element of that behind it too you know because slavery was a little bit different in, in Paul's day sometimes it was just indentured indentured servanthood and so Paul knew that there was this element of you know not just seeking freedom for freedom's sake but growing and bettering yourself etc and telling the slaves it's okay to do that It's okay to to seek your freedom, to be out from this indentured servanthood and to make a living, etc. And he gave them the right to do that. It's all this background stuff that we see here. So that's kind of what we're looking at when we look at this church and some of the things that are going on. And we're going to reference some of those things as we go forward throughout the book because they become really important. Because there's things that Paul says that you go, oh, he's responding to this. You know, for instance, when Paul has to defend um, his suffering, which is the first week something they likely looked down upon, that Paul had suffered and been in prison, and to them that was just unappealing. You know, Paul was lower class, you know. Or when they challenged the fact that Paul um, refused to accept money from them, that was a huge thing, because when these teachers would come into the community and these philosophers, it was a pretty big deal to want to support them. Not for their benefit, but for yours, because it gave you status. So if you supported these people, it was kind of like today, you are making donations. When people and organizations or whatever, they give money and they donate. Sometimes it's just genuinely from a good heart, but other times it's influence. Makes them look good. It's a way to promote themselves. And that was huge in Paul's day. And so for Paul to come in and some prominent Christians, oh, we're going to support Paul, and Paul doesn't want their money because he doesn't want to be a burden to them. That offends them. And so Paul actually has to defend himself in that regard of not taking their money because some saw it as an offense. All those things play into what's happening here and what he's going to do. So we'll come back and reference those. Now, let's get into some uh, chronology and some, some exactly what happens here because there's more letters than what we have here. Okay, It's going to get a little confusing, but if you take notes, I think we'll be okay. We saw Paul's first visit to Corinth, we already read that, Acts chapter 18, we saw that it was, um, I'm sorry, he actually visited on his second missionary journey, he wrote the letter on his third, I think I told you he visited on his third, he actually visited Corinth for the first time on his second journey, then wrote this letter on his third journey, he spent about a year and a half there, we're told, that was the longest day that he had stayed anywhere up to this point, it was an important place for him to be, that's where he met Priscilla and Aquila for the first time. Um, After that, he actually left for Judea, which included Jerusalem, sometime around A.D. 52. So he visited in A.D. 50, visited in A.D. 52, wrote this letter sometime in 53 to 55. Okay, a little span there. We know that he actually returned back to this area of Corinth probably about a year or two later. He stayed in Ephesus for three years. So Ephesus is fairly close by. So Paul actually went to Corinth first. A little bit later, he came back to Ephesus, stayed in the area stayed at Ephesus for about 3 years. now Ephesus was close enough to Corinth that people could go back and forth and we know that some people from the Corinthian church went to visit Paul in the Ephesian church again so it was close enough for that to take place. now it's also about this time here that we we had Apollos and Cephas that visited Corinth. you remember part of the trouble there some were saying i'm of Apollos i'm of Peter. well they had visited during this interim period, after Paul had left, and then when he was staying at Ephesus. That created its own problems, because now there's divisions in the church. Some like the way that Apollos taught. Some like the way that Peter dressed. Whatever it is. So now it had caused some kind of controversy. But again, remember, status was really important to these people. And so, if maybe Apollos was a little more popular than Peter, then, you know, I'll gravitate towards Apollos, because if I support Apollos, maybe it helps my status. Whether that be in culture, or even within the church you think we have any of that going on in the church today where it's amazing when you look at some of what happens what's that i can handle it he can handle it <laughs> yeah that's a little dig um it, what's that he is, royalty. he is royalty that's right you know that's why i hang out with him helps my status um What's interesting is there's some... In some segments of popular Christian teachers now, they have these circuits set up where what they basically do is they connect with other mega-churches and they'll say, I don't receive a salary for what I do. You know, and, and give the impression, I just... You know what? I don't burden the church. But what they do is they have arrangements set up with these other churches where they all bring them in to do these big seminars and preaching and stuff, and they pay them. And then, in return... The pastor from here will also bring these guys who also do the same thing. But what they do is they build this sort of network and within that network there's a lot of prestige and prominence. And what you sometimes will see happening is that they want to hook up with other popular mega churches to boost status. Now, I'm not saying it's always done with wicked pure, impure motives but there is a certain amount of that where there's the connections if you can get into the right circles you can build your ministry by connecting with the right prominent teachers or whatever and you saw a little bit of that at Corinth so the Corinthians at some point write Paul a letter now we don't have that letter Okay, it's missing we don't really know what was in it except this that they wrote Paul over some concerns that believers were involved with sexual immorality. Now remember, this is a Greek culture, highly sexualized. So they had written Paul a letter to get his advice on dealing with a matter having to do with sexual immorality. That's all we know about that first letter. We don't know anything else. So Paul actually writes a letter back. We also don't have that letter. Okay? It's before 1 Corinthians was actually written. So we call it a missing letter again. So Paul responded to them on his own, and he told them in that letter to disassociate themselves from believers who call themselves Christians, who are a part of the church, but continue to engage in sexual immorality. So Paul wrote them and said, you have to disassociate with a brother or sister that does that. But the Corinthians misunderstood. And they thought Paul meant to disassociate themselves not just from members in the church that did that, but anybody in society. So all of a sudden now, they couldn't hang out, they couldn't minister, they couldn't do anything with any unsaved people in the community because the whole community's filthy with sexual morality. So they misunderstood Paul. He was simply saying, no, when you have a believer that does that, you need to disassociate with them. It's an element of church discipline, if you will. They misunderstood it and said, don't hang out with anybody, which means they shouldn't have any contact with the unsaved world around them and that's not at all what paul had intended but they had misunderstood that in fact if you turn to 1 corinthians chapter 5 paul addresses this 1 corinthians chapter 5 verses 9 through 13 i wrote you in my letter that's the missing letter that we don't have i wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people i did not at all mean with the immoral people of the world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters or when you would have to go out of this world but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a violer, or a drunkard or a swindler not even to eat with such a one for what have I to do with judging outsiders do you not judge those who are within the church but those who are outside God judges remove the wicked man from among yourselves so what had happened was Paul said don't hang out with believers who refuse to submit themselves to Christ when it comes to issues. But they had said, oh, Paul doesn't want us to hang out with anybody. But Paul has to tell them, wait, wait a minute, you're missing uh, We don't judge the world. We judge what's inside the church. So don't stop associating with the outside world because you lose your ability to witness Christ, Correct. So our role here in culture and society is not to shelter our stuff ourselves and, and lock ourselves away from the rest of the world. We're supposed to engage the world. We have to have a lot less tolerance within the church for sin. But outside, God will judge them. And so that's what Paul has to do. So, Paul wrote them this letter, told them to not associate with immoral believers. They misunderstood it. So then what we actually have... Is the second uh, Paul's second letter to them, and it was—I'm sorry—their letter to Paul, which was this um, clarification on the matter. Okay, so they actually wrote Paul another letter, and that one's missing as well. We don't have that. So they wrote Paul another letter, asked for clarification, but within that letter, they ask a bunch of other questions. We know what that letter included, even though we don't have it, because Paul answers those questions in 1 Corinthians so the very first letter we have isn't the first letter in the list but 1 Corinthians now is, Paul, or is Paul's response back to them to answer all the questions that they had asked it included things like lawsuits among believers sexual normality uh, divorce and remarriage um, what to do with meat sacrificed in the temple all those things and so when we went through 1 Corinthians in here you saw that Paul answered all those questions That's the first letter of his that we have. But again, it's not the first letter. So there's been all this communication going back and forth and some miscommunication happening. Got some controversy already brewing, some things that are happening after Paul had left. So we have this letter, 1 Corinthians, that Paul wrote. He answers all those questions. And then he actually makes a visit. After delivering his letter, 1 Corinthians, to them, Timothy actually took that. Timothy came back to Paul with some very distressing news. So Timothy took the letter, 1 Corinthians, with all these answers, back to the Corinthians. Paul then waits to hear. Timothy comes back to him with some bad news. We don't know what the issues were, but they were were serious enough that Paul actually then makes an emergency visit back to Corinth. It's not recorded But he makes it in terms of the book of Acts, but he makes this emergency visit back. And it happened to be an extremely painful visit that Paul had to make. In fact, look at 2 Corinthians now 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You guys tracking with me okay so far? Not too confusing? Okay. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verses 1-4, through Paul says this, But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow... Notice it says, again. He said, I won't come to you in grief or sorrow again. For if I caused you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote to you, so that when I came I would not have to have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. What Paul mentions here is, is two things, a, a visit and a letter. So he makes this painful visit to them. After Timothy had come back and told them there's some concerns happening at Corinth, Paul decides to go there and deal with it. Now, it may have been to deal with, with the sexually immoral. We, we don't really know. We just know that Paul made an trip, emergency trip, unexpected trip, back to Corinth, and it ended up being this visit that was filled with sorrow and grief. Paul says that he caused them grief by his going back to Corinth. We know that it was extremely painful for Paul because Paul had intended to make some other trips to, to Corinth in the, in the future but he gets this unexpected visit that he has to now make he goes on it it's painful enough that he cancels the other visits doesn't go and the reason he tells us here ultimately in this text is I couldn't bear it I couldn't bear to show up again have a visit just like the last time and again we don't know exactly what happened we just know that it was an extremely painful visit for Paul So what he does at that point then is instead of then going back a third time, he changes his plans, decides not to go back, and instead writes them another letter, which we don't have. (laughs) So he wrote 1 Corinthians, and between there he got another one that we don't know. It's missing. That is referred to as the severe letter. So we have this painful visit, it's called, and now we have the severe letter. And apparently... Paul wrote in a way that caused them a significant amount of pain and sorrow when they received it. Grief. Which means it was probably a letter of chastisement, probably a letter of correction, probably a letter of rebuke. But when the Corinthians got it, they were grieved by it. Paul, even in the text here, if you look at chapter 2 again, look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 7. I'm sorry, is that... uh... Yeah, he says in in verse 8, Wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your your love for him. He's talking about an individual that had sinned. For to this end also I write, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now a little bit uh, before that, if you jump up, he talks in verse 4 about writing in much affliction and anguish of heart. I wrote to you with many tears so that you would be made sorry so not that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have for you. Paul says he wrote this severe letter with pain and anguish and sorrow. And what happened is when they got it, they were grieved as well. Paul a little bit later says, in some respects, he regretted the letter. It's a difficult verse because while he regrets the letter... He also says later that he was glad that he wrote the letter because it resulted in their repentance to some degree. So all we know about this letter is that it was a difficult letter for Paul to write, that it had something to do with probably some pretty severe rebuke or chastisement, that when they got it, they were grieved by it, but it was enough to move them, at least some of them, to repentance. That caused some controversy too because now they were upset because Paul had canceled his visit and wrote a letter instead so now Paul's got to deal with that because now Paul's untrustworthy you can't rely on what he says he said he was going to come visit us and then he didn't he wrote us a letter instead and he changed his mind well now the false teachers are grabbing onto that and saying see Paul's not trustworthy <laughs> he's not a man of his word so, it's, you can see how through each one of these little things, it's almost like there's a little bit of correction, maybe a little bit of repentance, and then there's some sorrow, and then there's some grief, and then there's some other issues. And it's just there's this tension between Paul and the Corinthians. So, after he wrote this severe letter to the Corinthians, this letter of chastisement, <laughs> Titus then comes back. He apparently is the one that took that letter off to the Corinthians. He now comes back. Paul finally meets up with him. In the meantime, Paul had gone off to Troas and some other places, and the text indicates that he is desperate to hear the news back from, from Titus. In fact, he goes to one city, and Titus doesn't show up. And it sounds like Paul's heart is crushed by that, so he goes off to another city, hoping to meet up. Finally, Titus meets up with him, and Paul has been waiting to hear how did they respond to the letter, what happened, what was, was, there, any, was there any change? And Titus actually returns after this severe letter visit with some mixed news. There's some good news, and there's some bad news. The good news was that there had been this individual that Paul specifically highlights in Second Corinthians that offended somebody, they offended the church, they likely offended Paul, may very well have been one of Paul's attackers. That individual had been disciplined by the church, they listened to Paul, they disciplined him, and he repented. So that's that's some good news. Paul's letter had an impact. We also know a little bit later in the letter that some of the Corinthians had responded fairly favorably to Paul's letter. And as a result, brought them a certain amount of joy. They had corrected their behavior. But not all of them. Now the bad news mostly revolves around some of the false teachers and false apostles that had come into the church. It appears that they were claiming that Paul was unfit for ministry because of his misfortunes. Remember, status? You know, looking at Paul and saying... Come on, he's not successful. Look at him. He spends his time in prison. He goes from city to city. He's a tent maker. Really? Manual labor? You know? And so some of them were saying that Paul was unfit for ministry. They also accused him of being unwilling to accept payment for his teaching. Again, something that was common. It's almost like, and I've, I've kind of tried to teach, you know, not just my own kids this, but I try to pay attention to this myself. When somebody offers you a gift, okay, in, in American culture and society, oftentimes we say, no, 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 thank you, I'm fine, thank you. We don't know how to, ex- to graciously accept what people give to us, and so, because sometimes it's hard for us. And I had to learn a long time ago, especially going through seminary, that when somebody would offer to, say, pay for some of my classes, or would, would help me financially, I had to learn to accept that even though it was a little embarrassing to have to rely on other people. Because I realized, you know what? I'm robbing them of an opportunity for God to use them to give. And if God has put it on their heart to give and to be gracious, I can't rob them of that because of my pride. So some of these false teachers are accusing Paul of not accepting payment, not a, not allowing them to be gracious to him. But in their, eye, in their mind, it was for their own self-benefit. It wasn't for Paul's benefit. They wanted to use it to build themselves up, to build their status. And so it appears some of them, these false teachers, were accusing Paul of that. And when Titus got to Corinth, he saw that. He saw what these, the damage these people had done. It questioned Paul's trustworthiness as well. Now what's interesting about that, and Dustin and I talked about this kind of jokingly the other day, <laughs> is that in the same breath, in the same breath, both these people are accusing Paul of not accepting payment, they're also accusing him of stealing money. Remember Paul, we've seen this in a couple of letters, Paul actually had plans to go to Jerusalem and to take an offering to the saints in Jerusalem because they were under severe persecution. Many Christians were having a hard time in Jerusalem. So Paul, as he would visit these churches, would ask for collections to be made and to take that money to Jerusalem. And so Paul had done that with the Corinthians. Well, these false teachers would come in and say, Paul is using that money for himself. So while Paul refuses to take our money, he's really skimming off the top and taking the money anyway. And so in this letter, Paul's got to defend himself against that. You can see what they're doing. They also appear to accuse him of not keeping his word and therefore being a man of flesh. He uses that word in here. They were saying, Paul is just... He doesn't understand the value of keeping one's word. And that ha- appears to probably be tied specifically to his change in plans. Next week we're going to look at what he talks about in terms of suffering and, and comfort. But immediately after that, Paul begins to defend himself against his change of plans. And it's because these false teachers had come in and basically said, you're not, you're not a man of your word, Paul. You can't be trusted, which impacted even what Paul had taught them that some of what Paul had taught them was now in question regarding the gospel because you can't trust anything. And the proof is, he said he'd come visit and he didn't. So now you can't trust anything he says. So Paul's got to defend himself against that, including the gospel that he had preached to them. Which may also come into play with these false teachers teaching the law. Remember, one of the things that Paul faced was the Jews were accusing Paul of teaching contrary to the law. Some of these false teachers that had come in, these, Paul calls them hyper-apostles, we're probably doing the exact same thing that those Jews are doing. Paul is teaching against the law because he teaches the gospel. And so you can see how Paul is having to defend himself against all of these things. So that actually now takes us to where we're at today. Still tracking with me here? He writes 2 Corinthians. Now what makes 2 Corinthians unique are a number of different things. One of them is that... um, well, let me, let me back up. Let me tell you about the structure first before we do that. The way 2 Corinthians is laid out, we're going to cover this. The first seven chapters are a defense. Paul defending himself. Defending his ministry. Defending his role as an apostle. Defending his authority as an apostle. The first seven chapters of this book are all a defense by Paul. The next two chapters, 8 and 9, are simply Paul's reminder. Remember that collection I'm trying to take for the Corinthians? You need to start it back up again. In other words, do what you said you were going to do. And so for two chapters, he talks about giving. And there's some great stuff there just about it in terms of how to give and why we give and how God uses it and blesses it. So he does that for two chapters. The rest of the book then, next four chapters, is all about Paul saying, okay, here's the deal. I'm coming back, and it's up to you how I come back. I'm going to come back with either a, I'll say a rod or a whip, or I'll come back in Grace. In other words, it's a preparation for Paul showing back up in Corinth to clean up the mess. He basically has been challenged in his authority as an apostle. And so he takes the last four chapters to to reestablish his authority as an apostle and to give them time to consider what's been going on and then to address it and to deal with it before he gets back so that he doesn't have another painful visit. But instead, shows up in Corinth And have them demonstrating their obedience to the Lord, having cleaned up the mess they had created, having given these false teachers the boot. And so it's pretty stern. There's some pretty strong language in the last half of this, or the last few chapters of this book. And so that's our structure. Dustin and I are still working through this a little bit in the sense that we're going to deal with the first seven chapters in the next eight or nine weeks. We may take a break after that because this book breaks down easily into these three concrete sections that can be dealt with differently, just like we did in Romans. Otherwise, we might be here for, you know, the next 25 weeks. So we're going to do at least first the first seven chapters. We may take and do eight and nine at the same time, but we'll, we'll worry about that when we get there. But for now, we're going to focus on those first seven chapters, which are defense of Paul. Now, what makes this letter unique in that regards? Um, Paul was in Corinth for about... Uh, Three months, actually, when he goes back on this this um, this next visit or whatever you want. So we'll just keep that in mind, too. That when he does go back, this letter will be followed up with a visit. So Paul writes this letter. He makes good on his promise to show back up. And he does that, and he's there for three months. That's recorded in Acts chapter 20. Um, so he's going to do exactly what he said. So we write this letter. And then he's going to go and visit for about three months. So what are the unique features and what can we learn from this? And I'll wrap it up with this and then we'll be done. Most of Paul's letters are real heavy on theology. You notice most of his letters are theology in the first half and then practical application. Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians all deal with theology and then practical application. We can throw that out the window with this book. Because again, this is very different. This is Paul's defense. Okay? So, it's very different in that respect. Um... The other thing that kind of makes this unique is that there is a lot more autobiographical information in this book than anywhere else. We learn more about the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians than we do anywhere else. Because, man, he pours his heart out. You can see his anguish. You can see his passion. You can see his love. You can see his sorrow and his grief. You can also see the confidence and boldness that he has in Christ as a minister of the Gospel and a minister of the New Covenant. So we see it all with Paul in this. So it's unique in that respect that this is a letter about Paul, written by Paul. And it's Paul revealing his heart and soul to the Corinthians. So it's unique in that respect too. It's not that Paul doesn't do that anywhere else, but he does it here like nowhere else. Again, this is the biggest chunk of biographical information we have about the Apostle Paul. So those two things primarily make this very unique. Now, I'm just going to run down through a list here and gives me about another minute here and then I'll be done. Um, That doesn't mean, however, that there's no theology, that there's no practical application, because it is woven throughout this. And that's one of the things, Dustin and I talked about this the other day as we were studying on on how Paul, you know, he starts the letter with, um, this is a defense, but he doesn't really start out with his defense, he starts out with this discussion on suffering and sorrow and comfort. (coughs) Because in Paul's mind, even in the midst of defending himself, his primary purpose is to teach and to instruct and to encourage. It isn't just about defending himself. Where we might be up there all, you know, I'm just going to defend myself, and it's all about me, you've been attacking me. Paul does it in a way where he just feeds theology and correction, and practical application. And so some of the topics he's going to address are this. Suffering and comfort. That's next week. He talks about the role of suffering and comfort and what we can learn from that, the purpose for it. He talks about the importance of forgiveness and comfort after repentance. He's got an individual here that had sinned and been disciplined by the church, and now he's calling out the Corinthians. What do you do after that? How do you treat a brother or sister in Christ like that? Well, it's all about love and forgiveness, but even going beyond that. So he's going to cover that. Um, He talks about the superiority of the new covenant versus the old. Um, Talks about living to please God rather than men. He talks about living for the eternal rather than the temporal, meaning earthly things. It's a concept repeated in the book of Colossians where it says, seek the things that are above. Um, he addresses the dangers of taking the grace of God in vain, meaning not taking it seriously enough, which, to be real honest, I think a lot of times us Christians here in the United States do. We take God's grace in vain. Um, he talks about being unequally yoked with unbelievers. We always take that in the context of marriage. It's a good marriage, but it's not about marriage. But he talks about what happens when we unequally yoke ourselves with, to our culture and our society, um, he's going to talk about principles for financial giving. He's going to talk about the real measure of authority in apostleship. What made Paul, or what gave Paul his authority, was it Paul himself? Was it God? Was it what he taught? How he taught? How he ministered? That'll help us in recognizing proper authority within the church. I should not have any authority simply because I get, you know, I get to stand up here, okay. What what gives authority to the elders within a church body? Paul's going to kind of address that as he defends his own authority. And then lastly, um, the value of self-examination. Chapter 13, Paul challenges them to examine themselves, look at themselves. Something I think oftentimes we forget to do as well. We get saved, and as Earl Rodmacher says, we get stuck, and we just go about our business and think everything's fine. And Paul says, no, stop and evaluate. Look at yourself. Make sure you're in the faith. Examine your behavior. Consider that maybe... You need to make some adjustments. So all of these things are found in the letter as Paul weaves us through the theology in in a way that, like I said, is all about kind of defending himself to some degree. So I'm going to go ahead and I'll leave it with that. Like I said, I knew it was going to be a little bit on the, on the heavy side in terms of, you know, there's just not a whole lot in the text that we did. But I think this will help us to set the stage to know where we're going. And at least um, as we then reference some of these things, you'll know where we're coming from and, and whatnot.